Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground immortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from the writing of Pastor Craig Mueller. He says, Bless the beasts and the children, for in this world they have no voice and they have no choice. For the world can never be, and the world they see will fear. So light their way when the darkness surrounds them. Give them love. Let it shine all around them. My guest today is Alicia Lacey. She's the program director for the Dougie Center, which is known as the National Center for Grieving Children and Families. It's a nonprofit organization based in Portland, Oregon, that offers support groups and services to grieving children and young adults. And its peer support program and network of children's grief services make up the organization that is the first of its kind in the United States, which is really amazing right here in Portland. Alicia, I appreciate you taking time away from your important work to be with us today. I want to hear about your background, who you are, and how you got involved with such a fantastic place. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I have a master's in art therapy counseling. I'm a licensed professional counselor in Oregon and also a registered art therapist. Um, most of my postgraduate uh, experience has been working with children and families, um, specifically um, who had faced uh, trauma and adversity. So um, after about 10 years of working um, in child abuse assessment, um, I felt like I was looking for a change and I had always known of the Dougie Center's uh, just great reputation, had referred a lot of families there um, and was able to just connect with their agency. And I feel incredibly grateful to be um, involved in the organization now for about three years. Wowzers. I'm glad I asked. I think of a program director as maybe more of an administrator, someone who does some paper and makes things happen, but you actually are hands in and have done the work and have been there and know this firsthand. Yeah, I do a lot of both. Um, there's definitely some of that administrator stuff, but I'm also fortunate enough to be in th uh, the group coordinator for three different groups. So I am regularly working with children and families, and that part of it really feeds my soul. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I think that's just so important. If you're going to spend one third of your life, because a third of your life is sleeping, a third of it is uh, hanging out, I suppose, watching Netflix, and the other third is work. And that work life really feeding your soul. I think that's pretty right on. You should be doing something that fits in that category. Absolutely. So if you can tell us the backstory of the Dougie Center and its tribute to little Dougie Turno. Sure. Uh, the Dougie Center started in 1982. Our founder, Bev Chapel, uh, was privileged enough to work with Dougie. Um, Dougie was an 11-year-old who had an inoperable brain tumor. And uh, what she saw with Dougie um, when he was in the hospital with other kids is that he was talking to them about death and dying um, when the adults around him were not. Uh, they were... Uh, you know, kind of tiptoeing around the subject. But he was saying, you know, do you think you'll kiss a girl before you die? And I think I'm dying. Do you think you are? And uh, what she really learned from him is that kids speak the same language. Uh, so she was able to put things in motion to start uh, the first support group. And now uh, we have 70 support groups happening. We're serving about 550 kids a month and 425 adult family members. 
That's overwhelmingly amazing to know that this resource is right here in Portland and it's free for anybody who needs it. I can't stress that enough. That's amazing to me. I love the fact that she could recognize Dougie's ability to bond with other teens facing serious medical issues. He intuitively knew that he was dying and he encouraged them to talk about it. That's so rare because normally there's that fear picture. Yeah. But it wasn't there. Yeah, we know that um, really in kind of everyday life, right, in society, uh, death is often a a topic that's just tiptoed around and we generally don't want to talk about it. Um, But what we know is so important is that there's a lot to talk about in grief. And grief is such a... uh, widespread uh, feeling that affects so very many people, if not everybody. And so talking about it is really actually kind of what helps. What happens if you're a small child? It's repressed. It's something we sweep under the rug. It's something that we don't allow ourselves to talk about. We get to be adults. And then how do we deal? Is it another death comes and there's repressed memories? Or what makes us so unhealthy if we can't get our feelings out? Um, potentially that those scenarios, we definitely hear them, um, all the time of adults who are now volunteering at our center that say, you know, when I was a child, uh, my parent or my sibling died and, you know, yeah, we weren't allowed to grieve and not until I came here volunteering at the Dougie Center did I really start to process that grief. Um, I think that grief can look absolutely individual for every single person. Um, but it is uh, really important uh, that we share with our kids that they are able to talk about and we really encourage them to kind of explore what their feelings are and what their reactions and questions are. So from what I understand, the Dougie Center has the peer support groups for the children. It's year round and it's really the only year round center, the only year round child centered program offering the peer support groups in our community. Is that correct? Yeah, so we have three different locations. We have a location in Southeast Portland, in Hillsborough, and in Canby. Um, and we offer groups every other week, and they are um, completely free. We know that uh, when families have a death, 90% of our families report financial instability at the time of death. About 30% of our families report that they're um, at the poverty level. And it's really important to us that uh, income is not a barrier to them accessing services. So we really rely on the support of our community to keep that going. So I have some statistical information that I'd love to share because I find everything you're doing there absolutely amazing. I've learned that the Dougie Center serves over 550 children and there are 425 adult family members each month and that the 70, 70, 70 open-ended peer support groups meet every other week and they're divided by age. And I also like the fact that they're divided by type of death if someone died of illness or murder, or suicide, and then who was it that died? If it's your parent, your sibling, all of that. I think that's just such great attention to detail to not not put it any other professional sort of way. Yeah, we know it's really important for kids to feel like they're not the only one and they're not alone. So when they are able to be in groups with other kids who have had similar experiences, uh, even if there's, you know, different details just to know another person had a dad die or another person had a suicide death, um, that helps them to feel like they've got a common experience and someone else out there can get what they're going through. So since this model is groundbreaking, this grief support and the expertise is spread nationally and internationally, how do you spread the expertise nationally and internationally with this work you're doing? 
Well, we have a huge focus on training. Um, every summer we hold something called the Summer Institute where we invite uh, professionals and just people from around the country and the nation to join and learn how to, to uh, replicate our model. Um, so right now we have over 500 um, additional programs that are trained in the Dougie Center model. Uh, we also uh, do individual trainings if people uh, have want us to come to them and do that training for their organization. Um, and we really just try to spread the word through any kind of um, publication or our podcast or any other way that we can kind of get the word out. We want we know that we can't serve everybody, but we can share our model and our knowledge of grief. So at the center, there's playrooms, art rooms, music rooms, and not just rooms where kids sit and discuss death, correct? Correct. Yeah, we have um, all of those things listed. We know that lots of times with kids and grief comes a lot of big energy. So we have spaces um, designed to really get that big energy out. One is called the Volcano Room, uh, where they are in kind of a just a safe area where they're able to get kind of all of that stuff out physically um, in a way that's not going to hurt anybody else because it's okay to be mad and to have all those big feelings, but we want to do that in a safe way. Do you see kids go in that volcano room and grab some sort of a soft object and just start pummeling the wall or just with questions like, why did this have to happen to me or... What do you hear? Sometimes, I mean, that's absolutely possible. I think other times, um, a lot of the grief work that you're seeing, you may not necessarily know it's grief work. Uh, we know that kids kind of explore uh, their questions and their way of being in the world through play. And so we try to offer them just different ways to play so that, that those things can come out. So oftentimes, um, something very concrete will come out in their play and you say, oh, that's related to you know their grief story. Other times they're really just playing and you may not necessarily know uh, that it, it's grief work, but it is. Is there anything blatantly obvious, like you'll see two boys in there and one of them will pretend like they're shooting the other boy and they're sort of reenacting the death of their family? Yeah, I think that can happen. Um, it, it makes me think of our sandbox room where kids go into um, a room and they're able to choose out kind of any toys from our big wall uh, that we have things like dinosaurs or superheroes. We also have uh, tombstones and skeletons and coffins. And we see lots of kids kind of reenacting um, like burial scenes or funeral scenes where they're um, either maybe creating something that they wondered about. We have several kids that say, I wasn't allowed to go to my mom's funeral, but this is what I imagine it would be like. Or, um, you know, my dad said I was too young to go, but uh, this is what I hope it looked like. So they're doing things like that where we can see that they're kind of acting and playing out their questions. I can totally relate to that. I grew up in a house where I had two parents and then my father's parents lived with us and my mother as well as my dad's parents all died in pretty short succession and we had a sandbox in the back and I had all my brother's toys, his um, matchbox cars and I'd lined them up. But in my mind, because I'd been to three long, big Catholic funerals, I thought, well, the more matchbox cars lined up, the more impressive it is for the rest of my dolls because we have this big procession going. And I would dig a grave space and I would have, they weren't Barbies, but I would have like those little below dolls and I'd, they'd be lined up by, there'd be a, you know, a dad and there'd be two kids and the mom would always be in the grave. And um, I would have friends over occasionally to play and we would be playing funeral in the sandbox. And, you know, luckily enough, 
I didn't have friends who abandoned me over that. But I think also in the in the Dougie Center, these kids have all been through this. So seeing something like that, wouldn't it be so odd compared to a, a girl in the suburbs in the 70s, I guess, in the backyard, huh? Yeah, absolutely. We have lots and lots of kids that will say to each other, you know, uh, you know, we might not hang out at school. We're not really kind of in the same crowd. But here at the Dougie Center, we have something in common. And I love spending time with you. So it kind of creates this uh, just alternative space where people are really able to connect on a different level. I hadn't thought about that, that there's kids who meet in these programs, but then they might see themselves out in the I don't even want to say real world because grieving is a real world, but they might be on the same softball team or they might be at the same class or something. Do those kids, when they see, or do you know this, when they see each other at school or while they play Pop Warner football, do they sort of have a bond or are they just don't talk to each other because they both know they have this weird secret? How does that play out? You know, I don't really know. I know that there's some families that form relationships and that they do spend time outside of the Dougie Center. But I think in general, um, the Dougie Center uh, presents this safe space for them where they can come together and connect uh, once every other week and have that time together and build that relationship really from that kind of um, just once every other week meeting. Um, They don't necessarily need kind of the everyday uh, meetups outside. My guest today is Alicia Lacey. She is the program director from the Dougie Center based in Portland. There's two other locations in Hillsborough and Canby. And this was the first center to provide peer support groups for grieving children. Now, I cannot stress enough, it's so overwhelmingly wonderful that this is free to all children and that children can come to the programs for as long as they need. What does that mean, as long as they need? Yeah, so we know, again, that grief looks different for everyone. And uh, I think there's a lot of kind of common misconception that maybe you get a year to grieve and then you should be over it. Um, and we know that that's really not realistic um, for anyone, that uh, possibly you never really get over the grief. I don't think that that's necessarily the goal. Um, and so we really provide space where families can come and stay as long as they need. We may have families that come to group for six months. We may have families that come to group for six years. And all of that's okay with us. It's kind of where, what they set as what they're, where they want support. So when you say families, are you saying a child can bring mom, dad, big brother with them? Or is there a contingency class where the child is in one room and then the caregiver or the parent is in another? Or how exactly does that model look? So we serve children ages 3 to 18. Um, all children ages 3 to 18 um, come with an adult caregiver, and we also have support groups for that adult caregiver. So the family may come all together, the kids split up and go with all of their peers, the adults go with their peers, and they can receive that support during group. Um, and then they kind of come back together at the end of the night. We also have some groups for young adults, so kind of the ages 18 to 25-ish and 25 to 35-ish. How do support groups attend a specific individual's thoughts and feelings? We're, we really are accepting of kind of whatever people bring into the room. So we have a, s- a specific group of kind of safety guidelines that's um, things like, you know, don't interrupt and please don't offer advice and things like that. But really, we kind of work with whatever a uh, child or an adult presents with. And um, people may have very different kind of views or experiences of their death and all of that is okay. So we often try to kind of invite, um, 
you know, invite the feeling that hasn't necessarily been verbalized into the room because we know that that may exist out there for someone and we want to help normalize that, that anything's really permissible. I find that interesting that there is the rule of don't give advice. I think all of us, I would say definitely myself as a child, when I had the death of a parent, I would have somebody else come sit next to me at the playground or the cafeteria, and I felt very secure to give advice because I had been through this, and this is what happens, and this is what a funeral looks like, and this is what you'll do. And um, I suppose if I was going to your center, somebody would have to politely say, okay, darling, that was your experience. Somebody else's is different. Uh, Do kids react well to that when they're told that just because their grandmother died, somebody else's grandmother death might be different? Yeah, I think um, I think it actually is a rule that probably comes up more in adult groups because as adults, I think we're we're a lot more well-meaning to try to offer that advice, and we want to be helpful and offer that. Um, I think also as grieving people, we've experienced when advice may be just not helpful, or you feel like, yeah, I've tried all that, thanks, and it's still not fixing things. So while people are very well intentioned in giving that, um, sometimes it just doesn't feel right, and maybe you just want some space to kind of uh, let go of what you're talking about without having anyone necessarily respond. Are your programs set up to give kids and the young adults answers? Or is it more as a listening space, safe space? What would you say? I'd say it's a a safe listening space and that we are trained and train our volunteers to ask questions that expand the conversation and hope that that kids are given the space to find their own answers. So we're not providing those answers, but hopefully we are kind of prompting them to think about things um, for themselves and kind of discover what they're looking for on their own timeline. Have you ever facilitated a group or been in one when a kid will ask something really blatant, like, what does it feel like when you're dead? If a kid asks me, what does it feel like when you're dead? I might say, oh, you're wondering what it feels like when you're dead. What do you think? You know, I might ask them again and just kind of reflect on the thing that they're asking. I'd say nine out of 10 times, the kid will then go on to explain what they're thinking. And it may be very different from what I'm thinking, but that doesn't really matter. My stuff is kind of put to the side. It's really about what the child brings to the table and and what they're wondering and thinking about. Do kids often ask questions like, what happens when we die? And um, what happens when his mom died? And is there, I guess, a lot of curiosity in that? There can be, for sure. I think, um, yeah, especially kind of, well, really all kids, but, you know, younger ages um, have less reservation, right? So they're just going to kind of let what's on their mind come out. And we really just try to facilitate that that question between kids. Well, what do you think? You know, does anybody else have a different idea? What do you think? Um, and just really open that up for them. What happens if it's the opposite where a child comes and they say nothing? They don't offer anything. They don't seem to have much emotion. They're just sort of in the corner. What happens then? We have a very important safety guideline that's called I-PASS. We uh, stress that with all kids who come to our program. And that really means that if you don't feel like talking or participating in the activity or playing, you can just say I-PASS and we completely accept that. Um, There are kids certainly who come and maybe are just not feeling like joining in the conversation or having a bad day, feel shy, whatever it may be, and they pass. 
Um, and we still would argue that they benefit from hearing the stories of other people because while they may not be contributing verbally, I can almost guarantee that they're listening and they're kind of absorbing the other things that kids are saying. Um, and again, most often after some amount of time or, you know, some getting used to it, they soon join in the conversation as well. Have you ever had a child or a young adult just continually eye pass and maybe they had to have some sort of individual work? Um, I'm sure that's happened absolutely in the history of the Dougie Center. I can't think of a specific example for me. Um, we certainly, we don't do individual or family therapy at the Dougie Center, but we are definitely connected to lots of providers in the community who may do that. And so we do have lots of other additional resources. If somebody, you know, really just seems like a peer support group is not a good fit and maybe an individual counselor would be a better idea. So we certainly want to connect them to the right resource for them. I know that the Dougie Center has a bookstore. What would someone find if they took a look in there? Yeah, so we have um, all kinds of guidebooks and workbooks, um, tip sheets, brochures, DVDs. We consciously create a lot of material, again, to just kind of share um, our perspective and how to work with grieving kids and how to support grieving kids. Um, and so we, we try to spread that information as much as we can. And I know you have a podcast, Grieve Out Loud. How'd that get started and what's the reaction to that? Yeah, it's it's been an overwhelmingly positive reaction. We're, we're astounded every day on how many uh, downloads it's growing, which has been really fun to watch. Um, Grief Out Loud was really started as just another way to reach a further audience, to um, connect with grieving people who aren't able to come to our center for whatever reason, and also to really help those supporting grieving people and kind of do a little bit of education on how you can be a good support to someone who's grieving. Um, so we, we, we started the podcast and, uh, had all those opportunities and then it also became a way that, um, others could share their stories and talk about their people who have died in their lives. Do any of the young people ever get on the air and talk about that as well? Yeah, we, we get our guests kind of from all different avenues, but we have had, um, you know, staff or adult uh, facilitators or young adult members uh, be guests on the podcast. I think we had a teen recently. So That's nice. Yeah. I think people like to talk on the radio, right? Yeah. <laughs> Are you enjoying yourself? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think getting the message out, knowing you have that space and you have you know, an unknown variety of people who you might be touching and helping. And one kid's story, one adult's story, just sharing maybe allows somebody the strength to be able to share, to be able to feel like someone relates to them. And again, to know that maybe if that specific episode of the podcast didn't relate, there's another grief out loud that's going to happen as well. Right. Nice. I like that. For your programs, do you have something set up for a child who's actually terminally ill? So rather than the child going through the grief and death of somebody else, what if that child is actually going through their own loss of themselves? So a little less than five years ago, we started a program that's called Pathways. Pathways is our peer support group that supports families living with an advanced serious illness. Um, and at this time, throughout about four and a half, almost five years, uh, we have not served a family that has a child with the illness, although um, we have served lots of children 
whose adult has an illness. And so we have a group for children, a group for teens, a group for the adult caregiver, and a group for the adult with illness. And the entire family comes to the center together. They split into kind of their respective groups to receive support. And then they come back together at the end of the night for a family meal. Give us just an idea or an overview how this looks. Let's say a child or a parent or someone is listening to this and saying, okay, that's what it really sounds like. That's for me. I really should go. What do they expect when they arrive for the first time? I would hope that they come into our doors and they feel a a sense of kind of warmth and safety. Uh, We really have replicated our um, programs to look like kind of a homey environment so that families are just comfortable. Um, we start out all groups with an opening circle. So there's a bit of talking time, uh, for kids and teens. They're able to then have free time where they can choose, um, to explore any of our expression rooms. So the art room, the sand room, the music room, the game room, all of those things. And then we come back together and kind of bookend it with a closing circle. So again, we do kind of a closing ritual that kids are used to every time. And that's the end of their Dougie Center evening. Are there snacks? Of course. Always M&Ms and popcorn. (laughs) Oh, that sounds wonderful. Nice. That sounds really fantastic. So if a child, parent, caregiver thinks this is what they want to do, first step going to Dougie.org? Yes. And maybe taking a look around and maybe calling someone like you? Absolutely. Yeah, we take lots of families, or sorry, lots of calls from families who are interested in getting support, maybe to sign up for our peer support groups, maybe they are just looking um, for some help on kind of how to how to talk to their kid about a recent death or wondering about a behavior they're noticing. We have lots of tip sheets online that parents can access and download. Um, So lots of different ways to find support. Can someone just drop into one class or do they sort of sign up for a series? We usually have families sign up for an orientation so that they can take a quick tour and kind of hear what our program is about. And then once they go through orientation and decide it's for them, we work with them to kind of coordinate their schedule with where we have openings in groups and they get assigned to a group. Can you just give us one success story, some child, young adult you're thinking of that you watch them show up and then leave as maybe a different person? Yeah, I I think there's so many to choose from. I guess one that um, always comes to my mind, and I I know that she would be okay with me sharing, is um, that of our executive director. So Brennan Wood came to the Dougie Center as a child at age 12 after her mom died um, and was a participant for a while. She volunteered a while. She came back and had... um, the opportunity to kind of work at the front desk and work through several different positions. And now she's our executive director. And she says every day when she's touring people that um, the Dougie Center saved her life. And she may still be alive, but her life would look very different if she didn't have the support of the Dougie Center. I'm so glad you shared that. And what an amazing success story that a child got tools healed and is in the position to give back like she is. You've been listening to KKPZ, 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you so very much to my guest, Alicia Lacey from Portland's Dougie Center. If you want to learn more, Dougie.org. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.